Amen. This morning, uh, Pastor Eric Stevens uh, of the One Association, also uh, a pastor at Life Changing Ministries. Uh, many of you know him. Uh, he has become like a spiritual father to many, uh, but he was mine first before he was all of y'all's. Uh, this is what the kingdom is supposed to be. When what you're used to is uh, a superstar who exists in and of themselves and just dresses so nice and is so handsome and speaks so well that you just like being around them and listening to them, uh, that's something altogether different. That's a, that's a different religion. I don't know what it is, but that's a different one. When you can know someone's way of life, you can see who they raise up, you can see disciples in their life, and you can imitate their way of life because they invite you into every part. That's what it's supposed to be. That's what Jesus did. He invited his disciples into every part. Uh, the man who's going to speak to you this morning is a man like that. He invites disciples into every part of his life, and he's been doing it for decades. And the Lord has given him a word this morning, and uh, I, I love him so much. Pastor Eric, would you come up? Bring us the word. Doing all right? Don't be discouraged that the Lord moves us to repentance during worship. In fact, you have to be discouraged by the number of worship services that can happen where nobody is moved to repentance. David played skillfully for Saul for years, and it calmed Saul's mind, but it never changed his behavior. We know we're getting somewhere when our behavior begins to be transformed. This morning, I want to talk to you about moving from Passover to Pentecost. That's from Pesach to Shavuot. It is uh, June 9th, I think, on our calendar. We're in the month of Sivan in the Hebrew calendar. And that puts us right in the middle of Shavuot or Pentecost. So that is where we'll begin to draw our text today. And as we do that, I have a word of praise for you. I'd like to do that before I slap you. I want to give you a big hug and a kiss right before we all get punched in the face by the word. Is that okay? I want to assure you that I never share anything from a pulpit that the Lord didn't first share with me. So if there's a place in this message where you're grabbing the sides of your seat, well, welcome to my world. That's what's been happening to me all week. Before we get there, 1 Thessalonians 1 and verse 4. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that He has chosen you. Because our gospel came to you, not simply with words, but also with power. Somebody say power. power. With the Holy Spirit. Somebody call out Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit. And with deep conviction. You know how we lived among you for your sake. You became imitators of us and of the Lord. 
and in spite of severe suffering. You welcome the message with joy given you by the Holy Spirit. And verse 7 is a big one. And so you became a model to all believers in Macedonia and Achaia. I'm excited to say that the churches of the One Association are becoming a model. Chief among them, the arriving church is becoming a model. When you move to public repentance, when you would rather pray than just stand in praise, when you would rather be cut to the heart than entertained, we're getting somewhere in the kingdom. The last 12 days with you guys has been amazing. We've had building projects together, backyard Bible studies, seems like every day. We've prayed through the tabernacle together. We had a discipleship house on a God at war. Man, do I love that subject. We had a meet and greet testimony time. Miss Jennifer dominated it by talking over me the entire time. I've had a good time with you. And my heart is swollen with joy for what the Lord is doing here. I come to you bringing greetings from your brothers in the churches in Indonesia and in Peru. I've received word from Gainesville, Virginia that they're praying for you. I've received word from Denham Springs, Louisiana that they are praying for you. In Victoria, Texas, they sent me words that I'm sharing with you today. In Denton, Texas, they are praying for you. And this morning at 5 a.m. in Houston, Texas, there were 20 men interceding for you this morning. They send their greetings because they love you. Arriving church, you are not alone. We're on a journey together. And we are going to get where we're going. The text that I have on my mind, more than that, the text that is being impressed upon my heart. If I'm completely honest, the text that is hurting me today is Leviticus 17.11. I'm going to ask that you go there and give you a moment to get there. In fact, you can help me out by saying Nick Massey as soon as you get there. Okay, so five or ten of you are there. Where are the rest of them? All right. I'm going to be reading from the NIV. If you have another translation, I trust that if you read it in the Holy Ghost, we'll come to the same conclusion. Yes. Leviticus 17.11 For the life of a creature is in the blood, and I have given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. You know, I'm not sure that we properly understand the power and the sanctity of blood. We live in a time when it's been lessened by the fact that we no longer kill our own animals. Our meat now arrives neatly packaged in cellophane. It's been lessened by the fact that we no longer die in our own homes. We disappear into hospitals. We reappear graveside, closed casket, buried by strangers. It's been lessened by the first-person shooter games with an unlimited ability to respond. It's been lessened by three John Wick movies that have literally made blood as common as water, and we celebrate it. We've lost something of the power and the sanctity 
of blood. Its very first message, the first mention in all of the Bible is in Genesis 4.10, and you don't need to go there. It's a story that you know. It's the story of Cain and Abel. The blood of Abel cried out to the Lord from the ground. In the Hebrew, it actually doesn't say the blood cried out. It says the bloods, plural. Something was so sacred about Abel's blood. Something was so precious about Abel's blood that God called it bloods, meaning everything that Abel is and everything that Abel would have been or would have ever come from him is crying out to me. It spoke a message to God. And somehow or another, its message to us has become lessened. You know, blood in the right circumstances, it leaves a powerful impact on someone. While you can become callous to it, the Lord can also immediately tune you in to its value. Some of you don't know me, and I don't know some of you. But I haven't exactly lived this sheltered life. I've seen blood in many circumstances. I played football, I wrestled, I broke bones, I had hundreds of stitches. I've jumped out of airplanes. In fact, I did it with Pastor Slaughter's mother. I've ridden motorcycles, I've repelled down mountain faces. I've slept in the jungles of Central America, the Andes Mountains of South America, the plains of Africa, the slums of India. I've even spent time in mosque in Indonesia made hundreds of international trips to something like 40 countries. I know what it is to be sick, to be lonely, to be naked and interrogated, to be held at gunpoint. But the single most traumatizing, the single most impacting, the single most soul-haunting memory that I have is one night when Jennifer and I were doing marriage counseling with an emphasis on good parenting and our phone rang and we don't usually answer it but it was ringing repeatedly and repeatedly and we could tell something was wrong and we picked up the phone to hear these cryptic words out of a broken and crushed voice come quick Judah has been stabbed and the phone dropped hit the ground and dropped the call we were unable to be reconnected. Now, those of you that don't know me, Judah is my firstborn son. Our car slid into the driveway, leaving a meeting abruptly where we had the audacity to encourage somebody about their parenting. And my son is stabbed. As I pulled into the driveway, I threw it in park before I came even to a stop. I ran to the door. I threw open the door, and nothing could prepare me for what I saw next. There was blood pooled in our living room floor. An arterial laceration was causing blood to shoot out of my firstborn's body with horrific force in terrifying quantities. It was spraying in the room. I'm a father. This is my son. As I tried to stop the bleeding, 
I was groping desperately to lift my 200-pound son from the floor while slipping in the profuse pool of blood that I was standing in. My hands were literally drenched in my son's life blood that was escaping his body. In my life, I had seen my own bones come through the skin. I'd experienced having all of my teeth knocked out of my head on more than one occasion. I'd experienced the cold steel of an AK-47 pressed against my forehead in front of a crowd. Nothing in my experience had begun to, com- to prepare me for the gut-wrenching myriad of emotions that began to fill my soul. It was heart-rending. It was haunting. This was my son. And my own hands were drenched in his life's blood. Several surgeries and quite a few months, and Judah recovered. But for a few agonizing hours that I spent drenched in his blood, I regained something of a profound reverence for the power and the sanctity of blood. Turn with me to Isaiah 53. When you get to verse 4, say blood. If you're a parent, right now you should begin to think of your child. If you're a sibling, you should think of the youngest sibling in your family. In Isaiah 53, in verse 4, Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds, we are healed. It's not uncommon in churches. In fact, we do it. We sing songs about the blood. We read about the blood. But if it was your son's blood gratuitously and grotesquely saturating your hands and it was because of your sin, would it change it? Would you think about it differently? Would you tritely recite the song? Would you tritely repeat the doctrine? How about the oft-repeated phrase, Well, I know I sin, but praise God for the blood. If it was your firstborn son, is that how you would feel? If it was your son's blood, would you rather die than see your son's blood spilled for something that you did? If it was your son's blood, Would you treat his blood with contempt by repeating the very event that caused his blood to be spilled? If it was your son's blood and he died, 
Would you get up from that blood-soaked floor and go on your business without grieving the great cost of your sin? Tell me that we haven't lost an appreciation for the power and sanctity of blood. Mm. I've got it, though. As I've reflected on it, I know why. It's because it was not your son. It was God's son. Tell me, reason with me here for a minute. Do you think that that makes you more or less culpable? 2,000 years of contempt produced by a conceptual familiarity without any actual experience are working against many in this room. We've learned to say the right phrases, but we've never felt ourselves covered in his blood. Matthew 26, 28 is so often quoted in church, it fails to make the impact that it ought to make. This is my blood of the covenant. It's not just blood of the covenant. When Jesus held up that cup, he said, it is my blood. I'll think on that for a minute, saints. Jesus saw your sin. Jesus saw your separation. Jesus knew the price to bring you into atonement. It is blood that makes atonement for one's life. It cannot be made any other way. This means his blood is very much on your hands. Have you ever wondered why today's preachers are celebrated in popular society? The apostles were not celebrated. Why these prosperity pimps live in lavish luxury and fly around in their multi-million dollar obscenities? Have we not lost a sensitivity? Have we not been scarred regarding the preciousness of blood? The apostles were hunted, tortured, martyred because they said to the world exactly what I am saying to you right now. Acts 5.28, it says, We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name. Yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Peter said it also on the day of Pentecost while preaching. He said, This Lord Jesus whom you have crucified, somehow or another, the power of those statements, the sanctity of blood has been lessened. For us, it's a cute song. For us, it's something to quilt and put on the wall. I didn't feel that way when I was covered in my son's blood. Sin in general, but much more specifically, your sin is why Jesus' life blood was offered for atonement. Maybe you should say that out loud with me. My sin, My sin killed, Jesus. killed Jesus. Sometimes when we diffuse the responsibility by saying, well, we're all just sinners, are we not lessening the cost that was paid for your sin? 
Man, when you begin to have this experience, when you begin to see that your hands are covered in His blood, when this experience really begins to permeate you, you can't continue to sin. It just costs too much. All you want to do is repay the Lord's goodness to you. When I found out that my son was going to live, do you know how gratitude swelled in my heart? Can you imagine if I flippantly repeated the same events that led to that? What would you think of me? What should you think of yourself when you do it with the blood of Christ? Psalm 116 is a psalm that has had so much meaning to me in these last several years. Beginning in verse 12, how can I repay the Lord? All of our theology is centered around the fact that you can't, so you shouldn't even try. What a cowardly approach to the Lord that is. How can I repay the Lord for all of His goodness to me? I will lift up the cup of salvation. Friends, the cup of salvation is the cup of His death. Did you know that that was also a marriage cup? That at the very time he's holding up a cup of my blood, he says. To grab that cup and drink with him was to pledge to do exactly what he was doing. This is why Matthew 16, 24 says, If any man would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Not some men, not a few men, any man. It turns out, that He does very much give you salvation for free, and then it costs you everything that you have. How do you repay the Lord? I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. Look at verse 14. I will fulfill my vows to the Lord in the presence of His people. I will fulfill my vows. Where is that in the church today? Pastor, I feel guilty. I've been looking at bad things. Well, now you've done your penance. Go home and do it again. Thank God for the blood. Pastor, I keep telling my husband I'll follow him, but I fight with him constantly. Well, you've done your penance. Go home and continue as you've always done. Thank God for the blood. Pastor, I've got a critical spirit. Yes, you do. Thank you for correcting me. Now I hate you for it. Thank God for the blood. We have the nerve that when we repent, we say, if I have done these things, and if there are any who have offended you, and Lord, maybe if on a Wednesday the sun and the moon didn't line up and the shadows weren't right, I sometimes don't do what is right. Liar! You are covered in His blood. And you can't even admit it without equivocating. You begin to see why they killed the apostles? Which begs the question, if we are in Christ, how do we get along so well with the world around us when the world killed him for saying this? Verse 15, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. What a peculiar verse. 
Jesus was faithful in fulfilling his vows. Can you say the same? I'm not talking about before Christ. I'm talking about in Christ. Can you say that you are being faithful to fulfilling your vows? This is what the cup of salvation is. It's taking seriously the costly nature of the blood. When you take that communion cup, you are vowing that his death is also your death to sin. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of whom? His saints. It's precious to him. When you see the example set before you, and you say, I die right now and every day and as many times as it takes to turn my back on sin. But to cavalierly say, ah, it's covered in the blood. It's kind of depraved. Might be more depraved than the guy who is out worshiping the devil. At least you know what he is. Revelation 5 is an incredible passage. It's a glimpse into the heavenlies. Revelation 5 and verse 5. Then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. This word means that John was weeping uncontrollably. You have to imagine he's almost 100 years old. He's trembling at the thought that something is wrong. See the lion of the tribe of Judah. The root of David has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne. You know, this really is the center of the gospel story. The triumph of God is that the lamb died to sin and for sin. But he was raised as a lion. He didn't conquer you like Constantine or Domitian or Diocletian. He didn't come in and force you. In fact, he didn't conquer you. He was crushed for you. His victory is that he died to and for sin. He's inviting you to die to and for sin so that you can be raised with him. I'm going to come to a sharp point. In your life, you're either going to excuse your sin or you're going to execute your sin. There really is no middle ground. You either kind of, sort of, may, if I did any, or you put your finger on your monstrous sin before God and you say it dies here and now. If you can't define it, how can you kill it? It was the very first step inside the tabernacle complex, face to face with the cost of your sin. We want to skip straight to the Holy of Holies. You must die to sin so that you can become a lion of God. This is the clear pattern in the scripture. It was Jesus' path, and it must be our path. Galatians makes this point so clearly. I'm going to read first from Galatians 3, and while I'm reading from it, you can skip ahead to Galatians 6 if you want, because that's where I'm going next. In Galatians 3, 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse 
for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus. So that by faith, we might receive the promise of the Spirit. He was cursed that you might be blessed. Imagine being covered in my son's blood. Imagine that he was perfect. And in that moment, I looked at you, covered in my son's life blood, said, I know why you're sinning. I know why you are wicked. But my son's blood atones for you, and I'm going to go one higher. You are weak. You are fleshly, and you are sinful. But because you're covered in my son's blood, I will give you the obedient son's spirit so that you can behave like him. Passover always came before Pentecost because you could never receive an empowerment of the obedient son until you had come face to face with the actual cost of his blood. The apostle Paul understood this. He says in Galatians 6.14, May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. That's become churchy language. Understand that a crucifixion was not on a glorious hill, as you've heard. It wasn't a beautiful old rugged cross, as you've heard. It wouldn't look good in a painting, as you've imagined it. It was a public execution that was roadside with hills in the background and the man would have been slightly higher than your eyes because the Romans did not want you to feel separate from what was happening. It was near the Damascus Gate in Jerusalem. It was a busy caravan of traffic moving back and forth in front of it. When men were crucified, their bodies were gaunt Jesus had been beaten, you know this. The birds circled, waiting for pieces of flesh that were often hanging off of the crucified's bodies to say, I have been crucified to the world means they find me as repulsive as that sight. Nobody said, hey, let's go out and catch some popcorn in a crucifixion. It was a public deterrent. It was a horrifying thing. To say, I am crucified to the world means that the world couldn't look at Paul anymore. But Paul also said, the world is crucified to me. The world and its pleasures had become abhorrent to him. He didn't secretly long for them. He didn't plan on continuing to sin. He was at war with it. This is why Passover comes before Pentecost. You cannot have the empowerment of the triumphant lion of the tribe of Judah without dealing with the cost of his blood. The cost of his death. More than that, your pledge of transformation in that blood and your own death 
to sin. The more seriously you take the holiness of his blood and die to sin, the more empowerment of his Holy Spirit you will receive to triumph over sin. The most ironic thing in the world is that the whole of the Pentecostal and charismatic movement began as a holiness movement, and it's become an entertainment movement. These clowns. It turns out that when you want to be holy like the sun, when you would rather die than sin, when that is what is beating in your heart, the Father is more than willing to give you a spirit of holiness. One of the biggest areas the church has been deceived in is the concept that sin is inevitable. It's excusable. It's expected. Doesn't that treat the blood of Christ as a common thing? It's a subtle suggestion. In fact, you guys are pretty quiet. What color is this? Everybody in the room, what color is this? What color is it? What do cows drink? Milk. Are you sure they don't drink water? Somebody doesn't have to out and out lie to you. They can simply suggest a truth. It's white. It's white. It's white. Until you draw wrong conclusions from that truth. It is true that a man in Christ may sin. But it's been suggested so much that it's become our expectation. We no longer execute it. We expect it. In fact, we feel good if we can manage it a little bit. Pastor, I'm doing better. It's been two weeks since I crucified Jesus. If it was your son's blood. This excusing of sin has produced an attitude that accepts defeat and renames it victory. I heard it this week. Hey, how are you doing? Well, uh, you know, I'm struggling, but I'm doing it from victory. Forgive me, but what the H-E double hockey sticks does that mean? Because it sounds an awful lot like you're saying that you are sinning and calling it victory. This is bad theology. And if that's what the apostles were preaching, nobody ever would have martyred them. Maybe that's why we can fly in jets now. Jesus' spirit... The spirit of the obedient son is the Ruach HaKodesh, the spirit of holiness. Acts 16, 7, Philippians 1, 19, literally call the Holy Spirit the spirit of Jesus. If you're ever going to be more than a slave to sin, you actually have to have the son set you free. Not free theologically, not free in words, free in deed. Not a statement of freedom. Not a false profession of freedom. Actual freedom. Jesus said in John 8 clearly that the man who sins is a slave to sin. A slave to sin, that's not freedom. You need to make up your mind today that you will never again plan to sin. You will never again excuse it. You will never again see it as inevitable. His blood paid for that sin. To walk 
in freedom from sin, you need the empowerment of the obedient son's spirit. You need the Holy Spirit. You need that. If you're in this room and you're like, well, you know, I just don't know what the deal is with all of that prayer in other languages and stuff. Why would God want that anyway? Let me assure you, you've not rightly interacted with his blood. If you died, you wouldn't see fit to judge what the Lord clearly lays out in his word. It's an actual sign that you still have work to do at Passover. The man who has dealt rightly with the blood is easily filled with the spirit of the very same son who shed the blood. Easily. The only resistance that you have is actual resistance to the blood. You've just renamed it. Which leads me to the second biggest deception that I've seen in the church world as a whole. And I assure you it exists here. All you need to do is believe. What a lie. That's never been true. Belief is a beginning. It's not an ending. Belief without obedience is probably more damning than disbelief in and of itself. To say I believe and not do it is an indictment. At least the guy who says he doesn't believe it's not going to have the I believe statement played back. You need to think of belief, I'm sorry, of faith as belief that is transformed into obedience. And I'm going to tell you a secret. You are transformed by being obedient. When you believe enough to obey, we can call that faith. And the more you obey, that faith begins to transform your life. The things that you struggled with in year one ought to be nowhere present in your life in year two. If you've been saved 20 years and you're still sneaking off to do the same things, how can you have treated the blood rightly? The reason that you're constantly being perfected, even when you're covered under the blood, is because you're getting more and more of His spirit of holiness and you're realizing things are sin that you didn't used to know were sin. Not because you're continuing to do the very same things you had always done. You will never properly obey the Lord without the empowerment of His Holy Spirit. If you're in this room today and you've believed the lie that the moment you raised your pinky at some crusade, I almost called it a circus, Pastor, but I didn't. At a crusade. And because you prayed a prayer that someone else wrote, you received all of the Spirit that you'll ever have, you have to ask yourself, are you actually free from sin? To properly understand the blood, to properly understand why Passover is followed by Pentecost, to understand the nature of salvation. Let's take the ark as an example, as in Noah's ark. The ark was salvation, wasn't it? Man, that's awesome, isn't it? It saved the human race. How can there be like one or two yas? You're scared, aren't you? The ark is salvation. It saved all of the human race. Of course, once it saved the human race, it came to rest on a mountain in Turkey. 
Can you imagine if they camped in the ark? They never left the spot of salvation. If they formed the denomination of the ark, the first church of Mount Ararat, and they never went further into the brave new world, what would have happened? What would that look like? Well, it would be the same thing that's happening all over the church world right now. There'd be an ever-decreasing life. There'd be increasing sin because the leaders of the ark denomination would begin to eat the participants for survival. This would cause an extinction-level event in people's callings. If the eight people on the ark never left the ark, they'd start eating animals that came in pairs of two, then they couldn't reproduce. Doesn't that sound exactly like what has happened to our Reformation? How could it not be that? One great man on a stage, 5,000 people in the audience, and not one of them capable of reproducing more Christians. First church of the ark. Salvation in the year 1500 and a giant fat tomb with a steeple on it today. Tell me we don't need an empowerment to move into the brave new world. You know... The purpose of the ark and of salvation in general was to open the door, door to the whole new world. Somebody say open the, door. open the door. To reclaim the original call of man. We are supposed to subdue the earth. We're supposed to multiply the image of God. We are supposed to put sin underfoot. When the door of that ark swung open, that was the task before them. Just like when you come out of the baptismal waters, it's the task before you. You know, this is what happened to Lydia. I'm going to quote a few scriptures for you so that we can move through them. I rarely lie when I preach, so you're safe in trusting that I'm quoting them accurately. If it sounds different, it's because your translation is wrong. I actually have no problem with your translations. You have the right to be wrong if you want to. In Acts 16, in verse 14, this is what happened to Lydia. It says, one of those listening was a woman named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth from the city of Thyatira, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. The Lord opened her heart. It wasn't a function of intellect. It wasn't produced by 1,500 years of doctrine, it was produced by a supernatural movement that opened her heart and produced a response. Man, do we need our hearts opened by the spirit of the obedient son today? This is what Paul was calling people to. In Acts 26, 17, he describes his ministry. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. Jesus says to him, I am sending you to them to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light. The blood is supposed to cause you to know that you are guilty. And the Spirit begins to open your heart Open your eyes so that you can enter into a whole new world, not just sit in forgiveness. 
We've even preached the gospel in selfish ways. We've made it all about your forgiveness instead of all about the empowerment to do the will of God. The only reason you're forgiven is so that you can be empowered. We need our eyes opened by the spirit of the obedient son. The call of the gospel is always a call from Passover to Pentecost. We're not supposed to get saved and then manage sin. We're not supposed to get saved and then just try to decrease it and become better men. Romans 12 and verse 1 says, Therefore, I urge you. Can you tell I'm urging you? I only get one shot at this. I plan to unload all that the Lord has unloaded on me. Can I tell you this has impacted my heart and my mind? I didn't beat everybody to repentance today, but I came close. It was the second to publicly repent. The blood is a very costly thing. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices. What? I just know that I'm forgiven. Praise God for the blood. You are a sacrifice. At least you're supposed to be. Holy. Somebody say holy. holy. This is the dirty word in church. Holy. Oh, but none of us are holy. Are you kidding me? Oh, well, we're credited with holiness. Well, how long can you be credited with something before it's actually attempted in your life? I stand positionally righteous because of the blood of Jesus. Well, if you stand positionally righteous, then shouldn't your position be righteous? These are cute little biblical confectionaries, little bonbons and lollipops that we hand out in seminary. And that's exactly what it produces. Sausages tied at both ends, unable to fight with the devil and win. Pansy preachers. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Oh, pastor, I love worship. I love me some worship. Please, let's go sing. Your first spiritual act of worship is to die. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Renew does not simply mean clean out your natural mind. Try to do better with sin. It means execute sin and be transformed into the obedient son by his spirit. The gospel requires transformation into Christ, not belief in Christ. Demons believe in him and it doesn't do a thing for them. Satan quotes the scripture, it doesn't do a thing for him. Transformation into Christ is the aim of the gospel. You know that Corinthians actually says in 1 Corinthians 2.16, For who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ? When did you get it? How did you get it? 
This can only be done by being baptized or immersed in a spirit of holiness, the very spirit that is Jesus. How could you ever say you have his mind while your mind is still on the sin you know you're going to commit and you expect to commit it? He didn't do that not once in his life. That was never on his mind. Which brings me to a whole other topic. In Acts 12, 13, there's a servant girl named Rhoda. In the passage between the 13th verse and the 17th verse, they're praying for Peter to get out of, out of jail. The whole room is praying, but apparently none of them actually expect anything to happen. Because when Rhoda says, there he is, he's at the door, they say, you're out of your mind. You're out of your mind, Rhoda, to believe that what you pray is happening. She was out of her mind, and she was in the mind of Christ. She had been transformed by the Spirit of Christ into a person that thought like Christ. What is shocking is how few there that was true of that day. In Acts 26, in the passage between the 22nd verse and 29th verse, Festus, the Roman governor of Judea, appointed by the emperor Nero, accused Paul of being out of his mind. This was because Paul spoke in the power of the Spirit. He lived in the power of the Spirit. So when he saw Festus, he saw a man that needed to be converted, transformed. And Festus said, you're out of your mind. Paul was out of his mind. He was operating in the mind of Christ. Paul had not consigned himself to expect sin. He executed it. He lived in the spiritual realm and not in some weird hippie way, in a very real, practical, godly action kind of way. Not all about what you feel and what you say you see. It actually was in the realm of what he did. I love our charismatic kooks. I can be that way sometimes. But woe unto us when we talk about what we feel in the Spirit and what we see in the Spirit because we have nothing to talk about that we have done by the power of the Spirit. Paul lived in the very Spirit of the obedient Son. You know, to expect conversion or expect prison doors to come open, does that make me out of my mind? Or does it just make me out of yours? The man who is done with sin steps into a brave new world. He leaves the ark of salvation. He leaves the Passover experience. And he walks into the new world of the Spirit at Pentecost. There's a reason that order was chosen. He is moving from Passover to Pentecost. He is transformed and sets out to transform the world into the image of God. These feasts came in the same order every year for a reason. And we cannot reorder them. In John 20, you might turn to this one. Verse 21 Again, Jesus said, Shalom be to you. 
As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. You have to ask yourself, theologian, were they saved yet? Jesus has died. Jesus has been resurrected. They viewed the cross. They saw the resurrection. But here they are receiving the Holy Spirit or else Jesus is lying to them. I believe this is the moment that they are regenerated where they're not just believers. They're being transformed on the inside. They've moved from people who acknowledge that what is happening is true to people that have the spirit of the obedient son in them. Luke 24, 45 is the parallel passage. It says, then he opened their minds so they could understand the scripture. Do you mean that when they believed, they couldn't understand? When they saw Jesus resurrected, they couldn't understand? But when Jesus breathed his spirit into them, they understood? Understand that even after he breathed on them the spirit and it opened their minds, he told them, wait in Jerusalem for the empowerment from on high. Tell me there's only one experience with the Holy Spirit. I tell you, you haven't properly experienced the blood. If you had, your pride would be carved away and you could see what is plainly written in the Word. May our minds be opened this morning. I told you I was going to punch you in the face. There's a saying in Romania, sometimes a kick in the butt is a step forward. If we begin to move from Passover to Pentecost, you start to see things that are written in the Word. Iron floats in 2 Kings 6.6. Hydrometeorology can be manipulated by a man in 1 Kings 17. Kings come from prostitutes in Judges 11. Former prostitutes make it into the genealogy of Christ in Matthew chapter 1 and verse 5. Five loaves and two fish feed multitudes in Mark 6. Servants become kings in Matthew 23. Losing life is really living in Matthew 16. Talk to me about what is possible and impossible. And I will tell you, revisit the blood. Revisit the great cost and ask for more of His Spirit of holiness and it opens up a whole new world. Speaking in tongues is a beginning. It's not an ending. Prophecy is a beginning. It's not an ending. The foundation for everything is personal holiness and corporate unity. And you can't have corporate unity without personal holiness. Pastor, I want to go on a mission trip. Well, make sure your hands are holy. Pastor, I want to help on the intercessory prayer team. Yes, I want you to help on the intercessory prayer team, but we first have to intercede for you. If we could relate rightly to the blood, the anointing of the Holy Spirit really wouldn't be a power, a problem. Actually, why don't we take a second? Let's pray for just a second. Father, we are asking right now that your Holy Spirit would open our minds to what is possible with you and impossible with us. 
Lord, that you would begin to undo generations of bad teaching, that you would help us see that actual victory is actually possible. Help us, mighty God, open our minds. We want to be out of our minds. Spirit of holiness, come upon us. Lord, as we make the approach to your altar, show us what is required of us. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Now that we've prayed together, Lord, open our minds. Let me tell you, having a mind that's open, it's not nearly enough. I know that's dirty preaching. Told us to be open-minded. You prayed for us to be open-minded. What do you mean it's not enough? Well, I want to explain it. In Genesis 6.16, the ark is made. Make a roof for it and finish the ark within 18 inches of the top. If you finish it up to, but leave an 18-inch gap all the way around under the roof, every other translation calls that a window. In fact, the Hebrew word is so hard. I think we have a slide for that. Nope. Other word. That's, there we go. So hard. A masculine noun. This goes on to describe a window space. Do you see that as a second definition that Noah built into the ark? The ark had a window all the way around the top for a very obvious reason. Have you ever heard stack high in transit? Let's not talk about that right now. There were a lot of animals on this ark. And when the animals were in the lower section of the ark, should you light a lantern on a top deck, it could cause a problem. For reasons that teenage boys everywhere have discovered. <laughs> so God ventilated the ark. It had a window in it all the way around the top. But by window, I really just mean a rough opening. Which is interesting. Because in Genesis 8, verse 6, after 40 days, Noah opened the window. He had made in the ark. Well, the first kind of window, a sohar, can't be opened, it's already open. It turns out that this word is not so hard in Genesis 8 and verse 6. It's actually our next slide. Chalom. It means a window that is perforated. Now, how do you have a perforated window in a wooden boat? You have to picture something like lattice, something like wooden bars that are still open for air to move back and forth through but prevent animals from getting out. That makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? How many of you have a screen door on your house? So you have a door but you have a second door, a screen door. That's what this concept is very much like. That ark had to be open to air at all times but they wanted a screen door maybe so the mosquitoes didn't get in or out. In Genesis 8, two birds come out of that window. I would love to teach about them, but I don't have time. One of them is a raven. He goes back and forth because there's lots of dead stuff out there to eat, and that's what ravens do. The dove will not go out and stay out because it doesn't feast on dead bodies. It doesn't sit on death. It would only go out and stay out when there was something alive. 
So both birds were sent out. It's amazing how two different birds can come out of one boat. Doves eat seeds. Ravens eat dead flesh. Couldn't be really two more different kinds of birds. It's literally a black and white issue. But I said they weren't going to teach on that. The point is, is that there were two kinds of windows in the ark. One that was an opening, and one that was kind of a, a I don't know, a lattice work of some sorts called a chalon. The chalon is open, but it it has bars. It's kind of like many of you in the room. You're open to the spirit. In fact, isn't that the great kiss of death in church these days? Well, I'm open to it. The Lord can do anything He wants to do. Yeah, you're open to it, and yet nothing is happening. This is an indictment of God. It is, if the Lord wanted something to happen, then He would make me do it and I could do it. And because He's not making me do it, then He must not want it done. So not only do we treat the blood lightly, we treat the spirit. Our text that will approach a close, and by approach, I mean like an international flood, is Matthew 21. Yeah, sing it, Maxie, when you get there. Justin Johnson, when you listen to this, I'm trying to help you out. Matthew 21, verse 12. Jesus entered the temple area and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and of the benches of those who were selling doves. Now how did they keep those doves in the temple? Were they just lying around free in there? No. I don't know. I bet they didn't spend the money for metal cages that you had to make by hand. I bet those doves were in cages that were open to the air to move, but had wooden bars or perforations so that it could only move so far. Much like the ark. Open to air, and yet there were bars there that would have to be thrown open for the doves to be sent into the new world. Jesus goes into the temple, and the presence of the dove was in the temple, but was caged in a kind of screen door. Oh, it could be called open, but you certainly didn't expect any movement. Are you catching me here? I wonder what happened when he turned over those tables. I wonder when he turned over the tables if maybe they didn't land on some of those wooden bars and break them open. Why do I wonder that? Because when the wind blows, you can't always see it, but you always see its results. Look at the results. It is written, he said to them, My house will be called the house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. Verse 14. The blind and the lame came to him at the temple, and he healed them. 
actually expected the Spirit to move and heal, move and open the blind eyes. Tell me, Christian, you who are taking seriously the blood of Christ, are you open to the Spirit or do you expect that the Spirit of the obedient Son will move you into holiness? Will move you into righteous action? Will move you into the things of God? Because there is an enormous difference between being in that cage and open to the air and having the cage broken so that you can move forward. Speaking of moving forward and the Passover, it's not really possible to cage the Holy Spirit. That's a myth. It's a misnomer. It's you who are in a cage, not him. We do this when we have weekend encounters, where we have a special room in the back to pray for people. We do it when the Holy Spirit is an optional moonroof on our salvation vehicle. We put ourselves in cages. We say, you can move, but you can only move like this. The chief movement that we need is towards holiness. Leviticus 26.13, I'm going to quote to you. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. During what feast did he bring them out of Egypt? Passover. 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 I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt so that you would no longer be slaves to the Egyptians. Passover is about Indian slavery. I broke the bars of your yoke and enable you to walk with your head held high. He never intended you to experience the blood of his son and then walk around in guilt and shame. The answer is not to just pretend you didn't sin. It's to stop sinning. When that happens, when you feel the weight of that, when you realize it's not a theological paradox wrapped in an enigma, to confound people. When you realize that you actually have to stop sinning, it causes something. I need Pentecost, Lord! I need your spirit! I don't want to be guilty of the blood! I don't want to tremble it underfoot! I have to have your empowerment! And he made them pray and wait 50 days so that they would understand the struggle. So that they would feel the precious nature of the blood. They were hiding in an upper room. They were still overcome by fear, even though they believed, even though the blood was precious, even though they had been regenerated on the inside. Yeah. They had to be clothed with power if they were going to walk like Jesus. To be clothed with power, you have to experience Passover, and it will make you long for Pentecost. And so I just don't go for all that Pentecostal experience. It's okay, you haven't experienced Passover either. You just think you have. For you, it's a theological exercise. You haven't had the experience of being covered in His blood. Passover precedes Pentecost because treating the blood with seriousness, executing sin, being crucified to the world, and the world crucified to you, it creates an expectancy that something has to happen. When Passover is done properly, Pentecost always follows it. There was never a year that Passover was performed properly and Pentecost 
penitentiary for that. In Leviticus 14, you can make it in your notes, verses 14 through 18. We have the cleansing of a leper. The words are used, take some blood. And then in verse 15, you then shall take some of the oil. Understand, the pattern is always blood, then oil. It is never oil, then blood. Nowhere in the Bible do you get oil before blood. It is always an appreciation for the blood that causes you to want the anointing. This very same ritual in Leviticus 14 that cleanses lepers is the ritual for the ordination of the priest in Leviticus 8. What does that tell you? You are leprous under the blood, but when you're anointed, you become as anointed as a priest. When the blood of the Passover is taken seriously, Pentecost becomes predictable, not sin. Pentecost becomes inevitable, not sin. He already gave you the, the blood of His precious Son. Do you really think He will deny you His Spirit if you have treated the blood rightly? Luke 11.13 says no. Luke 11.13 says He will give you His Spirit if you ask. Consider what it means to walk to the front and say, Look, please, I hope you will. If, if, you, if you want to give me your spirit, then, then um, give it to me. That means that you have not properly assessed the blood. If he's already given you the blood-soaked sin, forgiveness in that blood, how can you doubt for a moment that He will give you the Spirit of the Son to become like Him? you understand what is at stake here? This is not a doctrinal controversy to be argued out. This is very practical in how you make a whole new world. Paul did more in the first century for Christianity than we've done in 19 centuries since. Because the world was crucified to Him and Him to the world. Now that we are at our closing place, you need to know that this pattern is more extensive than I've even let on. In Leviticus 9, the blood of the Lamb was treated with sanctity and power, and fire fell from heaven in full view of all the people. Passover, Pentecost. In 2 Chronicles 5 and in 2 Chronicles 7, there's actually 120 trumpeters in an upper room. 120! The people are in unity and they have sacrificed appropriately and there is blood! And in 2 Chronicles 7, fire falls from heaven in full view of everybody there! When the blood is treated appropriately to fire, the spirit of Pentecost falls on the people! In Acts 2, those who were in Jerusalem who properly treated the blood of Jesus Christ happened to be 120 of them just like 2 Chronicles 5. They properly related to the blood of the Passover lamb so fire from heaven fell upon them in full view of the whole world. There is a pattern here that cannot be ignored. If you get right in the blood, He will get you right in the Spirit. Did you stop short? Because Jesus didn't. 
I began this whole message with a few questions. I want to repeat them to you. If it was your son's blood, would you rather die than see your son's blood spilled for something that you did? Because Jesus' blood was spilled for your sin. Now he's asking you to die to sin, to be crucified with him. Will you? This is a step in the church. We call it an altar. In the charismatic world, the altar has become gimme, gimme, my name is Jimmy. For me, Cynthia, for no more. All about me, Lord. Understand, first and foremost, the altar is a place to come and die. The altar is a place of death for the believer. If you won't join Jesus in his death, you will never become the Lion of God. You will never be truly filled with the Spirit. In a minute, I'm going to invite you to join him in his death. The second question I ask you, if it was your son's blood, would you treat his blood with contempt by repeating the event that caused his blood to be spilled in the first place? Jesus' blood is not just for forgiveness. More to the point, it is actually for freedom. Will you continue to show contempt for the precious nature of the blood by repeating your sins? This altar is a place for you to die with Christ rather than repeat your sin. I ask you a third question. If it was your son and he died, would you get up from the blood-soaked floor and go about your business without ever breathing the cost of your sin? Jesus did die. And you were the one covered in His blood. If you grieve over your sin to the point of dying at this altar, dying with Christ, He will comfort you with the empowerment of His victorious Spirit. He wants you to walk as an obedient son. I didn't tell you the best start part of the story with my two sons. I only mentioned the one that died. I didn't mention the one that was holding the knife. You know what it feels like to, as a father to know that one son stabbed the other? Even by accident. You know what that feels like? I wasn't the only one covered in my son's blood that day. My youngest son was covered in his older brother's blood. And he was sobbing when he realized what he had done. And it was a mistake, but my God, was it a big mistake. I lived to see that younger brother become every bit the man that his older brother is. That is my actual goal for you today. Because it was you holding the knife. It was you covered in the blood. And I'm praying for the spirit of our older brother to move upon you. There should be an expectancy in this room right now. You should be ready to kick down the gate of the ark. 
You should be ready to break the cage that you have been in. You should be ready to do something. If you sat through this entire message and the Holy Spirit of God has not given you an action item, how can you be saved? Let's just be perfectly honest. Either this, whether delivered well or not delivered well, either this is a message that the Lord has for the church or it's not. How many sermons can you sit through and simply sit through them? So in a minute, we're going to rise to our feet. Not yet. And I want to tell you, we're not going to raise hands to acknowledge that you need to show reverence for the blood. We're not going to raise a hand to show that you have to stop repeating sin because you now love Jesus. We're not going to raise a hand to be filled with the Holy Spirit with every head bowed and every eye closed because Jesus Christ was not a coward, neither must His followers be cowards. In a moment, we're going to pray and standing on this side of the stage will be Pastor Massey. Pastor Massey is going to pray for those of you who want to experience a new movement of holiness and gifting in the Holy Spirit. This is for those that are standing here right now holy. And you, all you want is more of His holiness. On the other side of the stage, Pastor Slaughter is going to pray for those of you that either never took the blood seriously or you're realizing you didn't take it nearly seriously enough because you keep repeating the same events. God has given you two pastors. The elders of that are going to stand right here in the middle to pray as the Lord would give us words for whoever is here. But when we do stand to our feet, I'm going to tell you something. There will be no gifting for anyone who stands and looks to see if some girl goes first. There will be nothing for the person that waits to see whether your reaction is popular or not. The gospel is not for you. The gospel is for the one that jumps to their feet, runs to the altar, and says, I don't care what everybody does. The world is crucified to me and me to the world. I am going to the throne of God. The altar is a place for those that die with Christ to be raised like a lion with Him. Worship team, would you come up here? If you are on the worship team, and this message is wrecking your heart. You do not have to play. Your worship is secondary to what happens at this altar. If you are able to play, then we certainly appreciate it. I'm going to begin to pray. As soon as I do, what I'm saying to you is do what the Lord has said you must. And if you wait... If you hesitate, then perhaps you do need to sit and contemplate the blood of Jesus right where you are. But for those of you that have contemplated it, 
I suspect that the Lord requires a few action because there is always a response when a heart is open. There's always a response when eyes are open. There's always a response when the door to the ark is open. There was a response when the cage in the temple was broken open. There is always a response. Never in the history of the world has God spoken to man and men sat on their salvation. Father, I am praying to you now in the great name of Jesus Christ as the church comes to their feet. Lord God, may we stand up spiritually. Mighty God, may we touch the heavens and be touched.